Me and my cousins. It's a podcast. Three guys, three decades, three perspectives. Me and my cousins. It's a podcast. Morgan Coffee Co. is a small batch coffee company out of Point Pleasant, New Jersey. They feature unique blends inspired by the Jersey Shore, and every month they feature a new single-origin coffee from around the world and their new Flavor of the Month Club. Bean Morgan Coffee Co. is giving our listeners 10% off all coffee and their recently released K-Cups. Visit Bean Morgan Coffee Co. and enter Cousins10 at checkout. Bean Morgan Coffee Co., the roast from the coast. Welcome to another episode of the Me and My Cousins podcast. I'm Angelo Gingerelli flying solo on this episode. Mike and Ken are going to sit this one out because I'm bringing in one of my best friends in the Jersey Shore comedy scene and a guy that writes incredible jokes and a volume of jokes that I think is, is kind of above and beyond anybody else out there. I've seen him perform probably close to 100 times. He really never does the same stuff over and over again. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but he really comes in new original material week to week to week. And I think if you go to an open mic anywhere on the planet, everybody's got a specific backstory or origin story that brought them to that open mic. I think this guy's backstory is probably one of the, the coolest of anybody in the game. I don't even really know it myself, so I'm excited to learn more about him on this episode. Without further ado, uh, we got Tadpole tripping on me and my cousin's podcast. Tadpole, what's going on, man? What's up? I appreciate you having me, man. This is great. So I think let's let's talk about this. I met you, and I'm going to guess 2018 or so, 20 early 2019, 2019 yeah, yeah. at the Brighton Bar Open Mic. That's a, it. Comes up on this show constantly because it's kind of the center of my comedy universe, um, and I get to have people on from there all the time. But what what were you doing that brought you to Brighton Bar, and how does the version of Tadpole we see on stage today in early 2021 happen? Uh, that's a loaded question. Uh, what brought me back home to New Jersey is where I grew up and, uh, my mother was selling her house. She asked me to come back home, help her. My grandfather passed away. I had just, uh, I guess previous to that, I had a broken neck and I laid in bed for 10 years. I really had no direction of where I was going to make my next move in life. And then I got to Thailand and I flipped the scooter. I broke uh, my tibial plateau. I tore my ACL, broke three ribs and my collarbone. And I laid there in a hospital. Well, like all of these things of uncertainty in my life were going on. And as I landed back in L.A., my mother asked me, you know, if I can come home and help out. And I was like, this is it. I get to go home and connect to who I was, who made me who I was. And uh, after a few months of sitting around the house helping my mother, I was losing my mind. So I was like, I got to find something to do. And I saw, you know, Brighton Bar. My brother used to play like death metal back in the day. There, I was like, oh, that's the spot. And I went there the first night. I saw you. And I think I've hit every mic since then. Yeah, you've been incredibly Except consistent. Except for quarantine, yeah, yeah. But, but even you started coming when we were outside at some point yeah, in yeah, summer. Yeah, yeah. We definitely talked outside there and had some great conversations about the coronavirus situation we've been in for way too long now. But that, that being said, you, you, talk, you just did something that happens a lot on stage. You mentioned something offhand, and I sit in the crowd, and I'm like, oh, I want to hear more about that. <laughs> that thing that meant nothing to Tadpole sounds incredibly interesting to me, right? So you said you broke your neck, were in bed for 10 years, then went to Thailand and got injured again in a yes. scooter accident, right? Are you comfortable talking about the first neck injury? How did that, sure, how'd yeah, that happen? Uh, I was hit by a drunk driver, and uh, I was able to recover from that. I had a bunch of surgery. I think I've had 13 surgeries, 81 procedures, but I was always able to recover. I was, a, you know, I was in good shape. I think I made a lot of good life choices to be healthy, and I was always able to recover until I got to the point of the flipping the scooter in Thailand. 
And what what brought you to Thailand? How'd you end up riding a scooter I, in Thailand? I've been I've been there a bunch for like martial arts and uh, training camps. We train fighters over there. Fight game. What's up? Okay, what's again? You mentioned something that's interesting, and you want to skate right by it. What's fight game? Uh, so f- uh, fight game is uh, MMA. It was a promotion. We have a clothing company. We train and manage fighters. It's a uh, a couple of the OGs, uh, Federico Lapenda, who's the founding father of mixed martial arts, he's my producing partner in L.A., and his MMA partner was Boss Boone, and they, they had, like, a couple of fight teams back in the day, in the, you know, uh, Strike Force, Glory, UFC. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, so I, we I say, got mixed up in that, too, somewhere along the way. Now, we say back in the day, what years are you involved in that kind of stuff? When does the uh, because MMA kind of exploded? I'm gonna say the late 2000s, right? It kind of got super popular. It sounds like you were a little before that, yeah. We were, I mean, we were right in that mix. I mean, Rico was there, he did the first ever pay per view, he did the first ever, uh, I guess international fight thing. Uh, he was in, he's a Brazilian guy, but he he was doing it in Japan. It was called the World Valley Tudo, which was the no, the original no rules, where you know, I mean, now it's a little bit safer, but okay. And then what were you doing? How'd you get in the fight game? How does that happen? Uh, again, uh, most of the things that happened in my life were by accident. I was, I was recovering from, from the neck, neck injury, and I was, you know, I'd always you know, done martial arts. I'd always been an athlete, and I stumbled into a jiu-jitsu gym one day and met Higa Machado, who is probably the greatest competitive jiu-jitsu practitioner of all time. And he happened to be close friends with Federico, who's a Brazilian producer, and just so happens to be the founding father of mixed martial arts and started the whole MMA movement. So my Hollywood connection got me into the mixed martial arts world. Right. It seems like it it was a a kind of a really good time to be jumping into that, right? Right right before it kind of broke through. Am I right when I say that you were kind of very early into that? Yeah, I mean, well, he he was way before it, and then... The UFC kind of caught a buzz after the Ultimate Fighter, and then he kind of got back in the his foot back in the door. He'd he'd already produced probably fifty movies at that point, but as the MMA, you know, he kind of put that to the side because MMA was like there was no real money in it until that Ultimate Fighter episode of the UFC, and that's when the money and the revenue and all those things started to come in. So he tried to you know come back into the game a little bit. Gotcha. Okay, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Now you threw out the term Hollywood connection. What was your Hollywood connection? I uh, well, I moved to LA uh, like three days after I graduated from Monmouth University, and to work for Jay Leno at the Tonight Show. So you had a job with Jay Leno when you graduated college. That was a done deal. Did you move out there hoping to get a job with Jay Leno? Did you apply to other jobs? How'd that happen? Uh, again, accidentally, lucky, or whatever. I did. Um, I. I was the head of production at the Hawk TV at Monmouth, and you know you make connections. I was always trying to do that thing, you know. I did the plays, I did all that stuff. So you meet a lot of people. And one of the guys that did a segment there was a page at NBC. And go ahead, you were going to ask him. Okay. He, uh, he said, hey, you, I, you know, I know you want to move to L.A. I was going to go out there to you know, try to be the next Tom Hanks or whatever it was. And he's like, oh, you know, this page program. And the guy who was running the page program was also working for The Tonight Show. And after one phone conversation, next thing I know, I was interning for Jay Leno at The Tonight Show instead of going out there to be an actor. 
which is probably the best move of my life. Okay, so I'm going to talk about why it's the best move of your life in a second. But one thing we try to do on me and my cousins, particularly because Kenny and the listeners he bring in are younger than their early 20s, right? We try to give people advice of how to get maybe get better at life um, or get to a a place quicker. I think that's a big thing you kind of said, making connections early on. I think a lot of times people get really down on school and the school system situation. We're learning things that are not applicable, but you're an example of somebody you went to college for something you were extremely interested in, and then you played your cards right and met people that could actually help you, right? right. Well, I, I went to school for biopremed and finished with communications TV degree when I, because I knew I was already going to leave. Okay. All right. right. So, so you had your plans in place, and then you get to L.A. What are you doing with Jay Leno? <laughs> Uh, well, at first I was an intern. I got, I got there and, you know, you get lunch orders, you do, uh, you know, whatever errands that the, the cool thing about the internship there is they let you experience all of the roles. So one day you're sitting with the directors and the technical directors and seeing how they work the switchboards and how like the science behind what makes, you know, the number one TV show in America work. And you're like, holy shit. I came from the smallest public school in New Jersey. Right. And my first grown-up thing is working on the biggest show, and you know what I mean. Well, like quite a like, jump. It was. It was. I think I I, I was lucky because I have always been fearless, but I was able to stand back and be like, "Holy cow, this is wow! Like, how did I get here?" Yeah, like literally, you went from JV football to the Super Bowl in yeah, a couple yeah, of days, yeah. right? Basically, what what happened? Yeah, it, yeah. I don't know how to explain it except for you know just not not caring what anyone thought and it's just been like hey if if i get a sh- chance why not try who who are they to tell me no who is anyone back home in new jersey to tell me i ain't good like i always had that fearless nature and i think it helped me when i got there yeah because I, I could definitely see even i i think i have some of that nature in me but i think if at a level like that it's tough not to be intimidated and you jumped in that big swimming pool and, and swam right you basically got yeah, eventually yeah. you got, the, you got all right the, hard, the hardest part about talking all of this stuff is this is new to me now I've suppressed these memories for o- over 10 years. And that's why I appreciate you at the open mic giving me the liberties. Sometimes when I'm intending to do something and I have a memory and sometimes I go on rants or whatever it is that I do. And it, it allows me to relive the things that I didn't maybe experience to its fullest at the time. So like now talking about this, I might jump all over the place, but no. And, and I think that's valuable, man. I really do. I think as much as open mics and stand up should definitely about writing jokes and making a crowd laugh. I do, and ever it's a cliche that it's it's a form of therapy, right? Every know, that's all it is before. for me. It's a diary and therapy. Um, but I think there's there's something with sharing your story with other people that definitely makes it a, a, another level. Oh, they're probably just telling one other person, but telling a room full of people. And then I think guys like me and you, they're a little bit older than a typical, you know, aspiring or open white comic in New Jersey. We can actually help some of these kids out with our stories. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, because I think you, you have this 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 life where it's like how many kids? And when I say kids and people in their twenties would kill to work on Tonight Show. You got the story of how to do it. You, you've cracked the code 20 years ago um, I, and way, you know, way before these kids even thought about trying to break in. Yeah, I don't know if that world exists anymore today. I think, I think a lot of the like, privilege and the, the things I got to do and see let me see how, how the world became the way it is today, right? That, that thirst of attention and desire, that's what Hollywood's built around, and now that's what social media's moved towards. So like I, I miss the days of going through and every, you know all these people having to work together instead of just someone picking up their phone and doing a fifteen second dance in a halter top. It's it's different. 
Y- yes. Okay. I, obviously, as a as a way outsider of the Hollywood system, I I can even see it myself that the game's changed drastically in right. twenty years. Right. Um. That that being said, I want to touch on that in a second. How was how was Jay Leno as a guy? Was he a good boss? Did you get to work with him a lot? How was he as a person? Uh, I part of me wishes I never left because I, but I would have never got to experience the things I did outside of there. But every single person involved in that show was a good person, or they hit it very well. Okay. Or I hadn't experienced, but everyone would hug people, come over and stop at your little cubby or at your office, say, "See how you're doing." Look you in the eyes, talk to you like you're a person. You know what I mean? And Jay would come in every day, and you know you only get a few minutes sometimes with him, or maybe if you're in a writer's room, you get a little time, and or you see him when he's in at his realist. He's a, he's like you know he's, he's like you and I, except he's working on a car instead of you know going for a run. Yeah, that's his his that's, release. Yeah, yeah. Now I have another. What's a writer's room like? What's a, a the, the most successful writer's room in the country? You, that's the writer's room. Yeah, at, it's at not the time, even. Right? There, so there's what, nothing to compare to it. It's, how. How talented is everybody in that room? How cutthroat is the is the joke writing process? What's it really like to have to write under that kind of pressure and have a joke, have a bunch of jokes every night that the whole country can laugh at? All right, again, a, part, a hard part of me for never talking about my life was not feeling like it was just my life because I've experienced these lives. That's also a hundred other people that gave me a, a incredible experience. So like I've always like withheld from talking about those things but if 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 you look at the room like the the way that if you're you're asking it just as the room of writers it's not cutthroat until everyone leaves that room right because you go in and sometimes it's writers that are working on skits or segments sometimes people that are just monologue guys right but when it's like the huddle breaks like everyone runs to their office because they want to be the one who right yep yep i'm writing 200 jokes a day some of these guys are writing more than that so everyone's funneling through stuff, whatever the newspapers are saying to get the, the best joke about that subject. And sometimes the five best writers are going to get there. Whoever gets there first, they'd be like, Oh, so I, right, so-and-so got it first. Right. There's runners that are run jokes down to Jay and like, you'll see people spring down the hallway. You know, they got something good. Right. right. Okay. Like, I'm going to get there before you get there. Yeah. So, okay. And how much has that changed in the world of, Twitter and Instagram, where it's like Jay Leno could tell a joke about a world event at eleven thirty at night, but the whole world is joking yeah, about yeah. it since six in the morning. Does that does that affect that writing process? I would think it has to, right? It, well, I mean, you could see it all unwound. Like memes are basically some of like the headlines or the or the, the clip the clips that we used to do where you put like funny tags to it. That's a meme, right? And I'm sure people did it before that, but to see it now, when millions of people can do it quickly and share it. Now who's the first to get to that idea, right? And if the first person to get to that idea doesn't craft it properly, do you have that liberty now? Because you already wrote the joke, but now you've seen it in a meme. So that's happened to me a lot over the last few years. I, like I, I'd write a joke on a Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm like, all right, I'm going to fire this off at Angelo on a Monday. And by Friday, I've seen 5,000 people sharing the meme. Yeah, I'm always curious now. We, we're as people involved in the common world were asked to be original all the time, but you're also being asked to, to outrun a billion other people that saw the same event and want to make fun of it. You, do you know what I mean? It's, right. it's a, kind of a tough thing. Well, it, I, I think the problem is that the, the quality is no longer important, right? Like as much content as there is today, it's the, the quickest, the shortest release of that, whatever thirst you're looking for when you're scrolling, whatever makes you stop. So instead of, all these people working together 
to make the best product for one hour to vie for everybody who's paying attention's eyes, right? Mm -hmm. It's a different world. Right. We became – see if this analogy rings true with you. We became a world of – up through the 90s with the the late-night comedy type joke, we were a a town that had a couple of very high-end steakhouses – and you waited and looked forward to go to that steakhouse. Right. Now we're a town filled with McDonald's, and you just run through that drive-thru and don't think about it because it's quick, it's fast, it's easy, and it's cheap. Right. Um, so that, that I, I guess with, with that being said, and the writing process being just so different in a world where everybody could be a comedian, right? And with thumbs and email address, you could be the funniest person alive, theoretically. But, but do you think anyone's crafting anything these days? Or they're, put, you know, they're telling their depressing story about whatever, but nobody's saying anything anymore. Like I, I don't know who people are. I only pay attention to what's going on in the room. Yep. I don't. I don't look at videos online, so I don't know who the good people are. But who the people that people send me videos to watch? Nobody's saying anything that's unique. Yeah, I, I, I get. I, see if you rock with me on this. I think it's a, it's a, it's a combination of you got to be so fast if you're joking about pop culture or the news or politics. That's getting cranked out every minute right, on social right. media. Combined with. If you're a comedian that really wants to, quote-unquote, make it in the Hollywood world, how how much about yourself and your beliefs and your politics can you reveal before that doubles back and gets you canceled or shuts off opportunities? Um, I, I, I don't know. I feel like where, where I am at in life right now with a family and a day job, and I'm not moving anywhere for a, for a while, right, until my daughter gets older maybe, um, I feel pretty free to say whatever I want in Asbury Park, Long Branch, Red Bank area, right? Because right. I have a pretty low ceiling on what else I could do in that area. But let's say, for example, if I was very conservative, and I'm not, but if I was, I think I would probably try to hide that because of opportunities that would shut me off to in a town like Asbury Park, it, right? You it, be, it, are you talking about Hollywood? Right, it, well, it, in Hollywood, it, it, the scale's yes. so much bigger. Yeah, but there, it's not even just about like politics. It's about the the... I, I try to stay away from politics, but it's it's about controlling the story, right? Isn't that what Hollywood is about, storytelling, right? And if, if you want people to feel or want to be famous, right? So you give them all these outlets. You say, you know, if you go on your phone, you do these things. You're getting that same thirst as a Hollywood actress who, who landed her first speaking role in a thing, right? So now you're giving to people from a TikTok video or whatever it is the – Okay, so let me ask you this. As somebody who's seen the Hollywood system from the inside for 10 years yes. and then been on the outside, the social media world for 10 years, is it, is it a good thing? Is, it, is what we're doing with social media and the idea of anybody could be a star, I, whether that's true, is it good or bad? What do you think? I, I, I think it's the worst thing for humanity. Okay, expound Period. on that a little bit. <laughs> no, I, I just think, I, I think uh, accomplishment is being taken away. I think if if it were whatever the TikTok thirst is, I went on it for a week to try to do it, and I, I tried to do everything once just so I could say I did it. And the thirst of it is what's dangerous to me because now you're showing – uh, all right, so someone makes a, a video famous of them doing a 15-second dance where they're doing something in a little cut-off halter top, right? So I was on TikTok for a week, and I'm looking, and I'm seeing – the exact same video, and, now, and then I investigate. It's a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 17, a 25, a 22, a 14, a 19. So you're scrolling through, and now we have 12, 14-year-olds doing videos, and, like, I'm not nobody's dad or nothing, but that, to me, knowing what I've seen when people get attention at a young age in Hollywood, right? You hear all the stories. They're true. They're not making them up, right? These are true stories. I've seen it with my eyes. 
So now you're giving people that attention for doing a 15 second video where nothing was really earned to get to the point, you know what I mean? They over-sexualized the Disney kids or whatever it was. And now it's done from your own home. That's scary to me. So I think social media is the greatest threat to humanity. Okay. I, I was going to disagree with what you said. And here's why I was going to disagree. And then you pulled me back in with the way you kind of looped it in with the, the underage sexuality stuff. I do think the thirst for fame and attention is a negative, right? Yes. I think the idea of selling people at a young age, anybody could be famous and rich, is untrue and potentially dangerous. Yes. I do think the idea of anybody with a phone and an internet connection can tell their story. I think there's something powerful in that. And that's going from a guy who started doing YouTube videos right. and then with the stand-up, with the idea of, I don't, I'm not going to chase sponsors. I'm not going to try to copy what somebody else did. I had this, this, this my life has gone like this. My, my, te- my childhood was great. My teens were cool. My 20s were real rough because of stuff that happened to my immediate family. And in my 30s, I came out the other end of that and it, it's been dope. Like, I'm married. I own a house. I have stand-up. I get to be a part of the, this beautiful community at the Jersey Shore and stand-up comedy. But, like, I wanted to tell that story, right? Yeah. And the idea that I could tell that story to people that might be going through a hard thing without a publisher telling me I could write a book on their dime or a TV network telling me I can make a show on their dime or a record company giving me a deal. I think that was a good thing 10 years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't – and I think I, I probably helped some people with what I was able to put out there, right? I do think where it's gone in the last 10 years is not at all a positive, right? And the one thing I'll talk about the underage sexuality thing is uh, me and my wife recently watched the show Ginny in Georgia, yep. right? And then I've, I'm aware of the show Euphoria. I've never seen it, but I know basically what it is, right? And I'm not throwing shots at anybody, but these are shows with high school age girls, right? And every shot is scantily clad, slow motion, sexy music playing in the background. Every time they do a party shot. It's or intentional. Party. Yeah, yep. and... And here's, here's my question. I, I asked my, this to my wife when we were watching it last week. Is where you brought that up is, why do we scream at rappers for promoting things that are illegal, like drug use, drinking, speeding cars, driving recklessly, whatever they do in their videos, but we don't at all ever scream in Hollywood for promoting over-sexualized images of very young girls that if you act on that in the real world, you rightfully go to jail right, or right. you're penalized for it. But isn't that ju- just as dangerous as... Drunk driving, drug use, whatever other crimes you want to scream at. Other if you believe in media. metrics, yes, but we believe in stories. We believe in controlling emotions. We believe in feeling something so then you can no longer rationalize a thought. Okay. Okay. So that's why social media to me is so dangerous because it could be great. Technology could be great. But knowing human beings for all of their existence, they usually don't go to the greatness of it. Right, they go to the sh- the easy, the 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 shortest route, whatever makes them feel something first is where human beings go to. Right, right. As much as we try to convince ourselves that we're intellectuals or spiritual beings, we're emotional beings. Right. Yes. Look at like I'm sure you can find periods in your life like, damn, if I wasn't on that bullshit, I could have, I could have, you know, I could have fixed things if I was just mature enough or just intelligent enough to be like, hey, I don't need to lose five years of my life because of a breakup. I don't. You know what I mean? Like all these little irrationales that we convince ourselves are real that, right? How many times do you have to fall in love with the one before you're like, all right, I'm lucky enough if I get someone just to put up with me for as long as they'll put up with me. Yeah. And if I get, you know, if you, if you get the, to the end zone, which is marriage and kids and all of stuff, you've, you've won. Why not reward yourself with being good in that, that existence? Yeah, I, and I think that's such a I, – I talk about this a lot, that in, in America – we do a better job of 
a better job than any other country on earth with selling the idea of incremental improvement, right? <laughs> yeah. If you're a custodian, you can't become the CEO of the company, but you can become the head custodian, right? And from there, you can maybe get the head of buildings and grounds, right? If you, you can't go from a Sentra to a Maybach, but you got the Sentra, you got the Ultima, you got the Murano, you got the Armada, you got the Pathfinder. You could work, we're always something you could work your way up incrementally, right? I think in other countries, they're a little more, there's the, the, there's the level you're born at, you ain't moving from that level, right? In America, the carrot is always dangling in front of our face of you could get to that next level. So there, there, I, I'm as happy to be a part of Jersey Shore Comedy as any human being on earth. I'm so proud to be a part of that. You guys let me be a part of it. But right in, after Brighton Bar on Monday, I'm always, there's always, I could always think I can make the next step. It is not, not a Netflix special, right. but, but I can be headlined Scott. Because you're a human being, right? right? But with the nights when I can just be happy with having friends and making the room at Brighton laugh, those are the best nights. Those are nights if, you're like, oh, I'm doing something. I get to be a part of this, and I'm, I'm getting better myself. If, uh, if someone would have documented the six months leading up to that Carl Callen roast, it was one of the best rooms probably in America. There was I, an energy. There was people, people started to hear. People was ju- like jumping off. There were people coming in there, and whatever it was, I even, I, I even told a few people. I was, like, I was like, man, there's something going on here. I, I, I agree with you, and I think the, uh, it was like a great – football season and that was the super bowl that one night right but i say all the but time, we were all rudies like every no like once once the energy started changing like people would like thought there was somebody and like that's when i i think i you know i popped off of you the other week for just busting your balls but like when people come in and think there's somebody and right everybody who goes up there maybe they worked hard to craft five minutes right they just want someone to pay attention to them let me get a shot to say what i got to say right and then you have other people come in maybe they did some things before they are somebody and they come in and talk over these other people, do their sets, and then leave, I ain't with it. i seen that. In L.A., i seen it in New York when I came back. I ain't with it. That's not – And, and I, I agree with that. I agree with that. If you're going to be – I think a lot of what we do – a lot of what I think my role is, right? I don't, I don't have any delusion of grandeur. Everybody's seen the movie 8 Mile, right? Yeah. I don't think I'm the M&M of the Jersey Shore. I think I'm the, the future David Mackay. Porter character. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm Mackay Pfeiffer, which I'm fine with. You might be the Eminem guy. It might be Carl. It might be Richard Dweck or Caprio. Who knows, right? But my thing is, I want to be the guy Shout that... Shout out Carl that, I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> um, but I, I want to be the guy that gives that kid the platform to go to the next level, right? Right. And, and my attitude, and my attitude, why I don't ever... I, I, number one, and you can read this in my book, Stand Up and Laugh Real, Michael Cosm Publishing right now, I think comedy beef is pretty silly, right? Yes. So my ridiculous. thing is I want everybody to come at 7, stay till 10, buy drinks from the bar, keep that place in business for as long as we can, and support everybody else. Now, I realize with they got to get to other Life. mics. They might have shows. The world is, is not, not that, right? But I always think if you're going to get good at something, you got to be comfortable in the environment. You, you train in, you play in, you get better at right? So I try to make that environment as comfortable for people as I can. But like you said, I, the, the the big time and people are thinking you're better than that room. I don't like that at all because my attitude, is like I think we have to use a basketball analogy. If you want to be a good basketball player, you got to go where other good basketball players are, right? You got to go to the best playgrounds. Right. And I w- I really believe on most nights that Monday night Brighton Bar playground is as good as any playground, definitely in New Jersey and one of the top ten in the country. I, there's, there's uh, twenty. I, there was that six month run where I had to put it up, and I, you know what I mean. There's I twenty. Sat backstage com- for we're a long we're time. limited to twenty comics now because of social distancing and right. where the world is. Right on any given night, seven to ten of those twenty spots are people that are amazing. 
Like, and, and the other 10 are people that are working stuff out or maybe not great that night, whatever it is. But look what that energy did for those other people, right? Like, if somebody had documented those six months, it, 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 people would be like, oh, shoot, we need to get to this Brighton Bar joint, right? Yes. But until somebody tells you this is the place to be or this is the person to listen to or this person's the famous person you're supposed to love – Nobody knows about it until you're told to. And right? the, thing, the thing that does bother me a little bit, I, I, I love everything that's going on there. It's not like somebody popped off from our playground and became an NBA all-star. It's like everybody right now is maybe at the G League level, <laughs> and, but they're acting like they're, they're LeBron James. Not certain people, right? Um, that's very I don't politically think, correct of you to say. Yeah. G League. I don't, that's it. I, yeah. And that, What I always say, I've said this on multiple podcasts, the only hate I've ever gotten from comics Let's say a one is somebody's never went to an open mic before, and a ten is Kevin Hart's on a football stadiums, right? right? The few times I've opened and been around, like the eights and nines on that scale, they've either been completely unconcerned with me or supportive. It's when you meet those guys and girls that are twos and threes on that scale, they hate on you, tell you what you're doing's wrong, tell you what you're doing's a joke. It's always people that get one step ahead, want to hate on the people that are either just starting or one or two steps behind. And I'm always conscious to never be that. Like I want to be the most welcoming nice guy you could possibly be because in comedy that the kid that shows up to the first the first open mic and you're cool to him number one that might turn that kid to having a great career right and you could turn him off that first night right yeah why would you not why would you choose to not be a positive part in someone else's experience whatever the expense is i I agree And, and, and really in our world we're not talking about really any money at all we're talking about time and being a decent no person stand up for right, real for real right like even so, when you get, like get up why do you think they all go and get sitcoms and all go because there ain't no money really in stand up right so the, the, that, that's even more of a reason in my opinion to be a decent person right yeah. well like well forget the stand-up comic element of that sense just why would you choose not to why would you choose to bring any extra yeah, I, I don't, I don't get it. I, I, and I, I really believe most of what happens at Brighton on Mondays is positive and good and fun to be around. Um, but then you just put, you know, thirty people. It, it in was the same more room, healing than any therapist I've gone to for me. The year I got to do right, just about a year. It would have been a year for me when quarantine hit. Yep. I got every every night. I got to work some stuff out that I was I had tucked away that I wasn't mature enough to handle with at the time. So I was trying to craft a joke around it to let myself feel it again in a way. And I didn't, therapists never brought that out of me. The corn balls at the Brighton bar did. Yeah. Well, you know what, why, why therapists and family members are not always the best sounding boards, even though they're, they're trained to be, and they theoretically because should of be the emojis first. Yes. And, and they, like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a decently happy guy most of the time, but I have some stuff that kind of like some, some sticking points in my life that a hard time getting around. And when I write jokes about them, and this is, I have a great wife, I have a great dad, and my mom unfortunately passed away, but the closest people to me outside of comedy don't think those things are funny. They don't <laughs> at all, right? But I could go to a spot like Brighton and tell those jokes and, and you know, use a cliche, laugh to stop from crying, you know? Um, but there's something to it. I do think, and comedians are a, even aspire, anybody that would step on stage, so from your first open mic to headliner, it's a, it's a weird kind of person that would do that, Right? That's not the things you could say either on stage at, a, at an open mic or comedy show or even just backstage, back of the room, BSing with everybody. You can't say those things to regular people. Um, 
they'll think you're crazy a lot of times. You know what I mean? Until you blow up and you say it on a special, and then they're quoting a special and saying they knew you way back when. Right. Um, but if you just bring that stuff up in a meeting or a family dinner or something, these, these people are crazy. But I do think there's something to the freedom of being able to say anything and explore almost any idea. I think it's valuable. Well, I think that's sort of why, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I initially went up on stage the first time besides being back home and doing it, like things I wanted to say. But the freedom for the first time in my life to say what I wanted to. Even though I'm saying at the most extreme I possibly could, I'm, there's a complete disconnect from me to me on stage. And the, I, I didn't like the world that I saw where people projected all this kindness and niceness, and I've seen them be shitty people. That didn't sit well with me for a long time. And when I got the chance to go up and tell jokes, I was like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be as close to the line as I can and do my best in real life to be the good person I try to be. If I could be kind to everyone in real life, hopefully it buys me to forgiveness to maybe point some things out that people aren't looking at because we're afraid to say it. Yeah. Agreed, man. I, I want to take this a little off tangent because something you said just, just triggered this question in my mind. When somebody's at Jay Leno's level, right? And there's sponsors and millions of dollars at stake and TV ratings and you got to appeal to everybody kind of thing. Were there jokes in the, in the writer's room that were phenomenal that he had to turn down because of those other factors. Cause I'm assuming when you get to that level and there's that amount of money at stake, you're not always one with the best joke because it might, it might offend this demographic or this sponsor or this, this constituency. Am I right when I say that? Yeah. I mean, there was like departments that would have to, like if you said something about someone or a product, it would have to go through like departments to be like, Hey, can we talk about this? Uh, I had a joke one time and uh, someone else crafted it a little better, but it was about uh, when Domino's came out with the little cinnamon things that they had. The joke was, isn't that basically just a leftover crust? Okay. The next day, Domino's sent like three truckloads worth of pizza to our studio audience for free because they made so much money off of us mentioning them. Okay. So like, like in the end of like so many different things happen. Like you'll see guys that are like, all right, I got 10 dirty jokes that I'm going to try to slip in because they know they're never going to get there. But they all, you know what I mean? But they're trying to work it out or they have other jokes that go with it. Jay might get a laugh, but you know it's never going to get in anywhere. And that's what was hard for me because I'm unfiltered kid from New Jersey at the time, 22 years old, I think, when I got there. Right. Like, I, I didn't know much about the world. I knew what I learned in school, which, you know, which words given from anyone else, I don't believe that anymore. You know, I think there's manipulation in everything that we see. So if I don't see with my eyes, I ain't 100 believing nobody. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree on that. And I also, to use, take that basketball analogy one step further, I think when you get to a job like that, you're like a rookie in the NBA that grew up playing in a playground, right? And then you got to get, get conditioned and learn the, the, the new game. You got to learn what's a foul, what's not a foul, what you get away with, what you can't get away yeah, with. Yeah. And that's why there's, you know, we see NBA players all the time that, you know, in year 10, they're older, they're less athletic, they've probably been injured a couple of times, but they're still more effective in the NBA game than the young kid that's super athletic and jumping out of the gym because that kid doesn't know the rules quite yet. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, and you, I think there's benefit in having the, the goal line, right? At, at the end of the day, every monologue was, let's see the 22 best jokes we can get into this, whatever it was, five to six minutes that night, or sometimes less if segments were long, whatever it was, the best 22 jokes, let's see how we can craft them into one, and Jay, Jimmy Brogan, Jack Cohen, they were, like, that's what they were masters at. You know what I mean? Like, forget the, the volume of good jokes. The, the, the way to, to craft them into something that made people tune in every night, two to one over the other guy. 
but made them whatever it was. So now we give people the, the easiest outlet. They can say anything. And that, that's why I don't like the, te- uh, the technology of social media, I guess. Oh, it's completely fair, especially coming from that from that background, that experience. That definitely that that challenge sense. was the I think the thing that made me continue to grow and move up, move have the experiences I had when I left there. I left and came back a few times because it was it was home. They treated me like I was like I was the you know little runt of the litter baby, for you know what I mean. But I was there. I was family. Okay. I, I so here's another question after about Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. You got you got in your own words, taken in and taken care of like the runt of the litter in that, that show. Right? right. How do you get in the club? How do you get, how do you, and your story of breaking in, you kind of outlined it already, but here's what, as an outsider, I always wonder like, how do some actors and actresses end up in everything Me and does. other people audition for 20 years and can't get a, a, a bit part in a, in a commercial. I always like, why is someone like, and this is no shots at all, but how's like Scarlett Johansson end up in every other movie, but there's a thousand other actresses, her age, her look, her probably, I'm guessing level of acting that can't get in anything. Yeah. uh, That's, that's tough. If you put a specific like Scarlett, I think I've seen her be sweet and nice to everyone. So I don't want to dog anybody, but from what I've seen, most people are compromised in some way. The more, the more, easily you are to be compromised the easier the path is now still some of those people are incredible talents but there's also incredible talents like a denzel who's uncompromisable i believe from what i've seen he'll be like all right just walk away he don't so it so does he make it into the club because he's just so talented and i guess that's here's i guess my question when you get to the level of your name and your face sells a movie to ticket buyers by itself like a denzel washington like a brad pitt you're kind of running your – at that point, to go to the NBA analogy again, you're LeBron James. You're bigger than a team. You're bigger than a jersey. You're the face of, a, of the franchise. In that case, the franchise is your acting career, I guess. But how do you go from just a, a, a guy that was in plays in high school and wants to be in movies to get a shot to star in a motion picture? Uh, I, again, load it. I mean, there's a lot of nepotism. There's a lot of conditioning. There's a lot of – like if you get people young – with that attention as stars, you can control their next whatever years. And that's why you hear all these like child stars 10, 20 years later, like, I just let go of me. Let me be me. You know what I mean? So if you can control people from expressing themselves outside of the art, you can control them a lot easier because they want that attention. Like who doesn't, why would we get up on stage if we didn't want attention? I hid from it for as long as I can, but for 10 years laying in bed, that was still sitting on my shoulders. Like I want to, I want to see, if what I got to say means something to somebody. So we all want that attention or we wouldn't be doing this. Oh, agreed. T- totally agreed. How do you get into it? I think you, you work really hard. There's some incredible actors. Martin Landau was my acting coach, and I learned more from somebody who uh, he, he went from Broadway plays to working with Hitchcock and Woody Allen. Just the little bits of wisdom you can gain from people if you sit and listen. Right? right. But instead, I think we've created a world where we chase the attention instead of chasing whatever connects you to the character or connects you to, to the, the emotion of the scene, whatever it is, it's being uh, diluted more and more. I think as we create content at such a simple, uh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a a hip hop reference out that you might, you might remember that when this happened, I'm going to loop it back in how it affects all of in a second. Uh, in 1999, so 20 years ago now, Tribe Called Quest had broken up, and Q-Tip released a single called Vibrant Thing. It was a, a club banger. It was everywhere that summer, right? 
and he was doing an interview, and he said, the, and the uh, the interviewer says on the effect of this single is so hot right now, is the whole album going to be this hot? And Q-Tip, who at that point was writing an older statesman, ten years in the game with Tribe Called Quest, he goes, everybody keeps saying hot. What about is my album going to be any good? <laughs> right, nice. dig it, and yeah, that's yeah. and that's that's right at the, the 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 turning point of social media, the internet, and unfortunately for Q-Tip and I don't everybody know who else, he is, but I dig him. Whoever yeah, he is, I dig. We him. we went with hot instead of good. You know what I mean? Um, I think that's just that this commodity that we trade in now of are you hot or people talking about you are you relevant? There's no bad publicity, right? But if you can keep putting that little fire thing or that little hot thing there, and you tell somebody that this is what's hot, you can't because you're a human being. That's how we're created right? right we can't not check that emotion if we're like oh my god this is what everyone thinks is this is what it this is what it is this is it right yeah. here and i it's weird remember inform informer something something no that was it's for a minute like people were like yeah this is it and then we we're like wait did you this isn't this isn't it <laughs> it's not i mean it's cool i dig it my man but it ain't it yeah it was a fun a fun little diversion yeah. for comments on mtv and then you're all this is guy's not gonna probably be around too long um that being said, a no shit at all to one hit wonders. I would take that one hit wonder that, like right yeah, now. Yeah, 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 you yeah. go do club dates on the weekends, make a couple thousand dollars, and I take a nilly those... vanilla hit right now. I don't. Okay. I mean, put a wit, put some dreads on us, and we'll go up there and lip sync. I'll, yeah. I'll take a check right now because I need to have some surgeries. Yeah, man, it's a. I don't uh, care. It's a, it's a crazy thing. I always say, and I, you know what, I learned this way before I was in this world at all. And I read, I read both of Artie Lang's biographies, right? And one of them, he talks about it, like he's like, <laughs> by traditional Hollywood standards, I'm a complete failure. But I've made millions of dollars being a complete failure. Like in Hollywood, you can fail and still get paid a lot of money if you get in that in that club. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and I looked at, I'm, so like we know a ton of funny people, right? Yeah. And there's not shots already laying at all. But already laying is a funny guy, no question about that. But like how many corporations and radio stations and movie production companies have lost millions of dollars on a guy that, if you look at his stats, probably not showing up to work on Monday morning? Um, and when do you move on to the next guy at that point? Do you right. Think it's fair. So, and part of that has, I mean, part is, I, I imagine he was great, right? Right. I, I don't really, all I know about him is, is he interviewed me and 12 hours later didn't know who I was. <laughs> I was like, all right. I, didn't, I was just it was up, but like as far I've never seen him do stand up. I've seen some clips of him on like Stern and stuff, so I know. And but what, what, why do you why do you keep getting that many chances? Um, again, back to the being in in the in the family, being part of the whatever. I mean, Howard Stern's guys always got work, right? Right, hundred percent. So it's I mean, uh, Stutter and John came and took over for Ed Hall at the Tonight Show. Yeah, you know, so so I mean, having having that should, you know, be should it be based on the merit of his jokes, or should it be based on the fact that he worked for Stern? Is that what we're talking about? Or? I guess, yeah. It, well, it's it's hard to say. How do people get to be superstars? I think you have to be incredibly talented, incredibly lucky, and maybe invest in knee pads. Is the best of what I can add up from what I've seen. Okay, fair enough. It, and it's then so it, hard to say because there's so many good people. That, and there's also so many good people that overlook so many shitty people. Yeah. So it's hard for me to. Well, I'm going to give you where, where I where I started going down this path in my head. Okay. Right. I I work my day job is in athletics, and in a normal year, I have to attend about 200 sporting events a year. Right. At all 200 of those events, somebody that is unknown sings the national anthem. They're all good singers, all of them. A hundred percent of them are pretty good at the national anthem. Right. None of them 
in my entire 20-year career doing this during the day, I've seen one person that I saw sing a national anthem get a record deal and put a single out, and it didn't really pop off that much. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think if there's that many good singers, and there's that many funny people that we know in the comedy world in New Jersey, and there's that many good actors trying to fight for the same couple roles in Hollywood, how do you break out of that? I don't even understand, because there's so many good people... I don't understand how, like, for example, I'm assuming when Britney Spears it's was coming so different out, today. there's so many people that were, could have been Britney Spears, right? right. Or when Lady Gaga popped 10 years later, there's got to be a, there's got to be 10,000 club kids in New York that could sing a little bit and could pick good beats and make pop techno songs. How does Lady Gaga become Lady Gaga and everybody else has to go get a day job? Uh, I, okay, I got a story I'll tell off the record about Lady Gaga, but she's unbelievable. One of the most talented people I've ever seen live. Okay. I, so I might not agree with her. Her music ain't my type of thing, but I can also be honest, right? Mm-hmm. I've seen her live several times in a club before she was anybody, and I was like, damn. It was, it was still an amazing I was, I was like, damn. Okay. Oh, hold on. Hey, like, I is... forgot about everything else was going on. I was like, I'm going I'm to give me a minute. I'm going to check this out. Hey, can, can you, I That's think transcending you... talent. Fair. Okay, I, I didn't know that. Either, so th- thanks for filling me in on that. Do you, don't you think, and uh, get a little positive for a second, Seeing that kind of talent live, when you see somebody do something that you can't take your eyes off, right? Whether it's in a hole in the wall in Asbury Park or on stage at the Super Bowl, it's amazing. It's, That's a, it, it's it's so powerful to see that to see somebody just master their craft and have the charisma that you can't stop watching them. Would that, you agree? That's that's why I keep talking about the energy that came with that six months leading up to that roast, because if. If people could invest in, like, put instead of pointing the camera at Lady Gaga while she's doing her thing, point it at the people that are breaking down. What are they feeling? Why is it that what she's doing is making them feel something and want to do better with their life or, or maybe become like her or whatever it is? Why are we investing in that, that instead of the, the real of what it's, what it's causing? That's, in, that, that's incredibly interesting. Right? Because I think as much as... I don't know, I feel like, like a middle America wants to go at these celebrities and they're all liars and phonies and fake. Now, you, maybe that's true, right? But, sure. you, but you can't tell me when I have a good song on my headphones, I don't run faster. Or when I have the right music on my way to Brighton Bar, I don't go into it with the right mentality to get better at what I want to do. Um, I think that, that, that the effect that has on particularly younger people, I think it's pretty amazing. Um, what are, your, what are your thoughts? Is that a good thing or a bad thing to be that affected by a piece of pop culture? Is that uh, I think it, I think that's what it was for, right? Originally, that's what it was for. It was not so you quest the attention, so you could feel something, so you can experience what they did, even if what they say makes you think of it in different words. Sometimes songs make me sing my own life to it because I'm feeling what they're saying. I'm like, yeah, but I'm a little bit different than if I'm, if I'm going in a hip-hop song or if I'm going in a country song, I'm feeling a little bit different because I didn't grow up in – like either like, of those worlds, like Lynchburg, Tennessee, like my dad, I grew up at the Jersey shore, but I grew up, you know, playing basketball. So I got some hip hop in me where I'm like, Oh yeah, that was my thing back in the day. And I would sing my own life. I started rapping my own life to it instead of, because I was feeling it. Yeah. I, I'll tell you somebody, cause you brought up, grew up at the Jersey shore. And I, I, if you listen to this podcast, all, you know, I grew up and still am a, a huge hip hop guy. Right. But Bruce Springsteen, who was like the poster boy for where we live in Monmouth County, right? The whole world knows him as being Mr. Asbury Park, Mr. Stone Pony, the whole thing. As a kid, even through my 20s, I didn't get it. I didn't understand Bruce Springsteen, right? I I knew the big songs. I was, whatever, I I, I get it. But then in my 30s, which is what he kind of sings to, he kind of sings about the guy or the girl 
that you know they're not a kid anymore. They're working every day. Life's beating them down. They've had some some troubles. I got it. And then when I got it, I was like, oh, now I get Springsteen. He's always been singing with Asbury Park, but I didn't experience that version of it. Right, right. And then I hit about 30, 35, and I was like, oh, I get it. I get why he's a working-class hero and why people react to this this way. Um, but it just took me to be in that right age group and that point in my life to understand somebody that everybody around me got much younger for some reason. So that being said, what are your next next thing like what do you want to do right now you're gonna in, in a great spot where you've had a, a an amazing last 20 years of your life what's the next 20 look like what do you want to do next uh, i would say i had an amazing 10 and then the 10 years laying in bed was incredibly informative so i, I wouldn't say they were great but they were they led me to be intellectually and emotionally free i've never been freer in my life what's next for me on that journey i don't i might go record a country album or I, you know, I, I, was, I just want to explore, explore where my mind goes. I, I was on 13 medications for almost 10 years, and it, I was still in the exact same amount of pain as I was when I was not on them, but it, it retarded my brain in a way where I couldn't, I couldn't complete. Like, I was still fairly intelligent, but I could never, like, get, get a, like a poem or a joke or a script to, like I used to. Like, I would just funnel through it, like take a job and collect the check, and, I, like, I was empty from thought because of medications and now you know i feel kind of free so i don't know where i'm gonna go maybe an album or not nice that's incredibly interesting, i was man. gonna I'm do a, to a stand-up special on may 15th for my birthday but caprio hijacked that week right. and i don't want to steal his thunder <laughs> shout <laughs> out dan big, caprio big weekend man utterly ridiculous coming yeah, may yeah, yeah. 2021 um so so how important was that freeing process talk about that for a second because i've this is i want this is something that hits me in the heart a little bit i grew up one way at the jersey shore and that way was nobody i knew did anything artistic, okay? I didn't know anybody that did stand-up. I didn't know any musicians. I didn't know any writers, photographers, art people. And then once I got in that world, I, be- I became more creative. And I think there's something to be said about that, that when you jump in that pool, you start swimming with those people and you get better at whatever you're trying to do, right? Yeah. So your experience is a little bit different. Your experience was, was solitude for 10 years that freed your mind. Obviously, it kind of opened me up to the world was I was around people that thought differently about me. I learned from different people, you know, opened my mind up and, and tried different things. What's that like when you do it by yourself? Um, well, it, it took, so I flipped the scooter and I already had the broken neck and I've had, I had the 13 surgeries, 81 procedures on my spine. And when I got to Thailand, like this was like the 10th time I've been there or whatever, like three hours after I landed, I was going to our beach spot by our gym that we go for a walk and whatever every day. And I flipped a scooter and I broke uh, tibia plateau, three ribs, collarbone, and tore my ACL. And laying there for 12 days, and I, it, it felt like a sprained ankle. And finally, if not for my mother, I would have never went to the hospital. She's like, you better go to the hospital. And she doesn't curse. So I was like, oh, I better listen to mom. And I went, and that's when they found all this stuff because my neck hurt so bad that I didn't feel the five broken bones in the torn ACL. Okay. That scared me. I was like, how do you not – like, I felt it. Like, I'm not, I'm not a tough guy or anything, but I was like, damn, it feels like a sprain. I'll be all right. I got uh, Boss Boone helped lift me back up on the scooter, and I rode it back to the gym with a broken it's tip. It's amazing. Yeah. It, but it's stupid. Yeah, like, well, if – I'm much smarter than that. I should have known, like – my arm was dangling. I was like, oh, it was twisted up looking. I was like, ah, rub some dirt on it. No, I should have been like, go to the hospital, get this squared away, and get your mind right. 
But if I didn't break all that stuff and lay in bed, I don't think I would have got my mind right. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting idea of sometimes the worst things that happen to us end up being good or the best. I went thing, cold right? turkey off of 13 medications. That's amazing, man. my neck still hurt worse than the five broken bones I had in that moment. I was like, there's something. Why do I still feel the same amount of pain in my neck with all of this in me? Right. And now, I, I mean, I'm still in the same amount of pain, but my thoughts are like, maybe not now because I'm like re-emoting a lot of these thoughts that I'm having. But I feel like when I, when I craft a joke, I finish it. I feel like I wasn't doing that for a long time. Like the, the, the philosophy I'm writing right now, I finish it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's powerful. It's, it's, it's and powerful. I think that separation of, of mind and body where I was like, how is pain like work? Like, what is it? So I'm injured now, but that doesn't hurt. Right. They healed. They healed my neck. They healed it. But that hurts worse than the injury. So like, how am I supposed to? So you have to fix the injuries and you have to fight the hurt. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting concept. Um, and it's, we haven't really delved much into this stuff at this podcast where the, you know, me and you talk about it a lot off camera and off mic, yeah, yeah. the philosophy, not the philosophy, the psychology of injury, right? And versus injured versus hurt versus the way the, the current Western medicine deals with an injury versus our mentality from when we're little kids. Um, it's really an, an interesting idea that we could talk about for hours. Um, actually, I, I'm pretty lucky. I've never really been seriously injured myself, but dealing with it a lot during my day job and your situation uh, just what constitutes pain and how much pain can we tolerate? And in some cases, and not to, not to sound too we are the world on this, but if, if physical pain translates into great artistic expression, there's kind of a cool silver line to that cloud, right? Right. Yeah. So the, I, the emotional is more, I think if we could as a species understand and, and tackle those emotions, feel them, feel them all the way and feel the hell out of them for the, for the moment they're supposed to last, right? But instead, because we are who we are, we, we stretch those things. We, we make reasons for why it's still lingering of hurt and feels. And, and, and would you say me and you are products of, I'm going to guess the first generation to just run full speed away from physical or emotional pain, that we want nothing to – we've had the option to take pills to – take drugs that will, will make us not feel what our body and mind and, and heart is telling us to feel. Are we, you and I specifically or our generation? Our generation. Um, yeah. Maybe our parents' generation. It just wasn't, I, I, I think, just don't think we're, it was we're caught up in a weird middle of things where I'm like, yeah, no, I, I mean, and then with the older people, I'm like, yeah, I'm with it. But I mean, like, I feel like I'm in the middle of people that are arguing about things that don't need to be argued about. Ag- agreed. We're in an odd place. And we, our age group is weird, man. <laughs> like, I, I, some things I, I agree with these kids about so much, and some things I agree with the older generation about so much. Um, but how, how, the, how you handle the resolution is what I don't agree with. I think we've, we've, we don't try to find resolutions. We find, try to find more reasons to extend the arguing. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Agreed on that, right? Right. And we live in a world where uh, cable news and social media and so much of what, what makes our economy churn day to day is based on that debate, right? You pick your tribe, you pick That's your it. team, you never deviate from it, even when maybe the other side has a good point or your team's been proven dead wrong. Because if now, if you agree, your tribe's going to be like, hey, you can't agree with them about anything, you're on our team. 
Yeah, the joke I always make is Republicans and Democrats have become the Yankees and the Red Sox. You pick a team, you buy a hat, and you never admit the other side does anything right or your side does anything wrong. Um, and I, I, I don't understand how that's a way adults think. That's, they don't. That's, that's how they kids. emote. Yeah. They emote. But so that's how the world's been conditioned now, right? We have to, we have to feel all the feels, and we have to feel them openly and extended as long as we can stretch them, as opposed to being honest. Where it's like, if you're hurt, find somebody and talk it out with them. Find somebody that you love and trust. If they if they expose that or they 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 turn it on you, they don't love you enough. Eliminate them from your friggin' script, right? Write some new characters into it. Why do we continue to let other people like control the way that we live our lives? Yeah, agree. Right, a hashtag will will shut a, a system down for days sometimes. People will stop living their lives because they saw a hashtag they didn't see yet, and now they got to spend their day fighting with someone else that really wasn't there. They weren't there, so how do they know it happened? Right? So now we pick and choose which people we believe. Again, back to human existence, has there been anyone worth believing 100? Like, we put all our faith into people instead of probability, yeah, maybe? I like probability. That's a good one for me. But I believe in math. Math, yeah, math, math tends to work. It does, always. But even that has some sort of manipulation to it, right? The words for numbers, who do, why do we believe one is one, but the principle is still the same, right? If a caveman had three Uggs and he needed five Uggs, he'd be like, Ugg, Ugg. So he'd go and look for two more Uggs. The principle works, right? But yep. the words, the, the extra around it, that's people. Yeah. Right? People looking for a way of saying the same thing. Right. Yeah, man. In our current world, the spin on statistics to me is always amazing, right? You can, pick and choose data, yes. right? If you pick and choose the variables, you control the solution. <laughs> yeah. It's an amazing, amazing time we live in, man. Um, I guess... Can I, I want to throw... Just because I thought of it now. Uh, Brant Daniels at the Tonight Show, guy worked in the art department, right? He... Uh, I never, like, I was a basketball guy. I was a sports guy. And when I got to the Tonight Show, I never, me and my sister were close, but I never understood her. She ended up being, uh, she started dressing bands and became the art director for Spotify. Okay. And growing up, I never understood the way she talked about, like, making, oh, this will look cute if you put this together. And she would change the colors of the room. And it would always, I'm like, damn, how does she think of doing that? I got to the Tonight Show and this uh, guy, Brand Daniels, the way he spoke, I was like, that's what Tammy Jane's saying. I'm like, what? So, and so then I watched how he worked and he would transform a set to a thing just by being that, you know, sitting back, fly on the wall. Right? You told me a while ago I should have a podcast, whatever, even though I think it's thirsty, no offense. I, the podcast would be that fly on the wall. I got to experience so many things of so many great people and see it. And a, and a guy like that who worked in the art department allowed me to connect to my sister in a way I never would have been able to understand. Right? Yeah. So, how do you make it? A guy like that makes it from being the best at what he did. Right. So you see a lot of examples of that. I talked a lot of stuff about the 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 sexuality of Hollywood and all of those things. Absolutely true. If it, if someone says they didn't experience their lying, you yeah. know what I mean? I've, I've, I've seen enough to know that I ain't nobody. But to get, you know, I've seen what happens when you're at a nightclub, when you're at a casting. What, why is it acceptable? Why isn't it all just those guys who are the best at what they did? Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Sorry to go uh, off on tangent. I was thinking of my sister, and I was so, all right. Go no, ahead. I, I, she's still working Spotify now. She's still there. Yeah, she's uh, she moved to the London branch. Okay, so great she, man. Shout yeah. out to her. Uh, last thing I got for you: we're both big basketball fans. We're both huge '90s NBA fans. Do you have any or one good Tonight Show story of an NBA guy we all know? Uh, a, a whole bunch, but I will pick. 
uh, Chris Weber and Mike Bibby because they're my boys. Okay, yeah, let's go. Uh, they so the the greatest NBA series, I believe, was the 2002 NBA Western Conference Finals. Right yeah. before they completely changed all the rules. And was everything. that the Lakers and Kings? Lakers Kings. Okay. When was it? Dick Vavetta and Joey Crawford got probably got paid on the side to. Make some calls. How did twenty? What is it? Twenty-seven to six fouls in the fourth quarter. We're up three games to two. Yeah, and that, that Kings team was nasty. Nasty. I mean, they, they were in the nasty. They were in the middle of a Lakers three-peat dynasty, but that Kings team was something off. else. They, the they played basketball to me the way, and I believe part of it had to do with the great players. Part of it had to do with Pete Carrill coming in from Princeton and breaking down the movements of basketball. Listen to a wizard like that speak. I got to be like Pete Carrill. I don't know if anyone knows the Princeton coach of great success, right? He ended up working for the Kings a couple of years when I was around. I was like, listen to the word, like how he breaks things down. You're like, wow. And it makes guys who are the best in the world, right? Or at least, you know, Weber is one of the best in the world. Page was great. Vladi was great at the time. Yep. So you, you have to be one of the best in the world. And to hear an old guy who's like five foot, to roly-poly looking guy break it down and make you that much better right so that team to me is one, one of the most underappreciated basketball teams there's teams that are more spectacular athletes and players and such like that but the way they played the game yeah they, they were fun to watch those early 2000 Kings teams were definitely fun to watch um so what, what do you got man what happened with Weber and oh Bibby? so they uh uh Weber and Bibby came on I think I might I might have talked about this once uh so they came on the the show and uh Mike Bibby's in the, the one dressing room and Chris was supposed to be running late. And as I'm walking down the hallway, I look and I see Chris pop his head out. I'm like, oh, and you know, he dabbed me up and said, gave me some love. And as he's leaning back in the room, I saw Tyra Banks. They, like, they were an item. They were out and they yeah, opened I think together. They were on and off again okay. back in, in the thing. I, I believe that, yeah, they had to be. I've seen they were out at the club with us. At least, you know what I mean? I don't yeah, think I'm yeah, exposing yeah. anything. So you were, you were getting ready to interview. I was doing a pre-interview, yeah, yeah. And then Tyra Banks just hanging out. She was, yeah, laying on the couch reading a magazine, and, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell the joke sometime on stage. I don't want to talk about inappropriate things. Okay, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, yeah, but she, yeah, she's beautiful, and I've seen her side boobie, so if... <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, it's kind of cool when you're hanging out with, with yeah, two like, of the best guys in the early it's 2000s. It's so uncomfortable talking about other experiences, but how else can I, like, explain it when I walked down, and I was like, damn, that's Tyra Banks, fool. <laughs> Remember Little Penny? Oh, yeah, that's yeah, what, yeah. That's what popped in my head when I saw it. I was like, that's Tyler Banks, fool. <laughs> and then I tried to talk to Mike Bibby. I don't even know what, like how that went down because I was still thinking about her beautiful little... <laughs> ah, nice, man. Well, dude, Tapple, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate you sitting down with me and my cousin's podcast. This was interesting. It was a little emotional. I think we really got to, got to the iceberg a little bit that you kind of let on to on stage every week, which I'm super happy we got to talk for an hour and not just those little five-minute increments we can at Brighton every Monday. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, it's going to do it for this episode of Me and My Cousins. It's appreciate a podcast. It. Stand up and laugh. Build a comedy scene, produce your own shows, and create community by Angelo Gingerelli is available now on microcosmpublishing.com. If you're trying to make your way in a world of stand-up comedy, you can build your career while enlivening your local comedy community and mutually supporting your fellow humorists, and you can even have fun while doing it. Angelo Gingerelli shares his hard-won advice for anyone who wants to create a comedy scene from scratch in a smaller community, carve out their unique niche in a larger city full of professional funny people, or anywhere in between. 
Lots of good tips here for anyone organizing community events on how to book venues, get publicity, and avoid drama. Also includes great arguments for starting or joining a comedy scene rather than thinking of yourself as a lone wolf and solid wisdom for being an asset to an existing stand-up community. Stand Up and Laugh by Angelo Gingerelli is available now on microcosmpublishing.com.